Over the last three months, we here at the church at Lachlan Springs have been walking through uh, the gospel of Mark. We've talked a lot about kind of the, the urgency with which Mark writes this gospel. It is a gospel of action. He uses the word immediately 40 times in just 16 chapters. Jesus did this and then he immediately did that. Jesus went here and then he immediately went there. It does portray Jesus very much as a man of action. The first 10 chapters, Mark really establishes Jesus' power and his authority, both over the physical realm as well as the spiritual realm. It establishes Jesus' divinity and his humanity, 100% God, 100% man. The entire thing is written um, to make you on the edge of your seat. It's like a Michael Bay movie full of explosions and car chases. And then... Um, everything leads right up to chapter 11 and the gates of Jerusalem when Mark suddenly slams on the brakes. Ten chapters cover more or less three years of Jesus' life and ministry here on earth. Chapters 11 through 16 cover seven days. 242 verses out of the 600 verses in Mark's gospel. Is one week. It's Holy Week where we are right now. Because of that amount of detail that Mark and the other gospel writers pour into this week, we have an incredibly accurate picture of what it would have looked like. And it started on Palm Sunday, the day that we observe today. As Jesus rode that donkey into the gates of Jerusalem, the crowds that had been gathering around him, the crowds that had been following him in the villages and towns throughout Galilee were lining the streets, taking off articles of clothing and laying them down in front of him, putting down palm branches, chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We know that, that Jesus from that moment as he enters into Jerusalem, as he enters into Passover week, everything is running downhill towards the cross. The next several days of Holy Week, Jesus goes into the temple during the day. He teaches the people in that vast temple courtyard. In the evenings, he would retreat to this little suburb a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem called Bethany, where, where he would spend the evenings with his dearest friends and his closest followers. As he's in the temple, the religious leaders, the, uh, the Pharisees, the elders, the scribes, the chief priests, they're becoming more and more nervous, more and more anxious, more and more desperate because they see the power that Jesus has over the people and they recognize that, that as the people are listening to him, they're going to stop listening to us. So, so they're more desperate in their plots to have him executed. All of that leads to Thursday night, where as we're going to observe this Thursday, Jesus gathers his closest disciples in that upper room. They have their Passover meal. From there, as Jesus closes with a hymn of praise, he leads them out onto the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, where we find Jesus in Mark chapter 14, desperate in prayer. He knows exactly what's coming. He is overcome 
with emotion. He is profoundly distressed. We see him in the 14th chapter of Mark begging the Lord if there's any other way. If we can figure out anything to do that's not this, please. But it's not my desire. It's your will that I follow. And shortly after those words, Judas, one of his closest friends, a man he had walked intimately with for three solid years, comes into the garden leading an angry mob with pitchforks and torches. His closest friend betrays him, sends him over to the authorities. Now these, these chief priests, these scribes, these elders, they immediately take him and they take him in front of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was um, the Jewish religious high court. It was made up of the high priest, all the chief priests, elders, scribes, all the religious elite of the day. Jesus comes in front of this high court and they have kind of this almost a mock trial, a kangaroo court. They're just hurling accusations at him. They're, they're making up stories about him. They can't convict him of anything because they haven't actually taken the time to get their story straight. We see in Mark 14 that, that one person would come up and, and make a false accusation and the next person would come up and make a different accusation and those accusations would contradict one another. So they couldn't actually convict him of anything until finally the single high priest stops everything. And he asks Jesus one question. Are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, yes, I am. It was all the high priest needed to hear. Because in his mind, that was blasphemy worthy of death. The Sanhedrin in that moment condemns Jesus to be executed. But see, here's the rub. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious high court, didn't actually have authority to do that. You see... Jerusalem, Judea, that region was under Roman occupation. It was under Roman rule. So the Roman appointed governor was the only one that could authorize an execution. So the Sanhedrin that night, Thursday night, in the middle of the night, after they've condemned Jesus to death, they spend the evening mocking him and beating him. They blindfold him until the sun comes up. They're just biding their time until Friday morning when they can rush him to go in front of Pilate, the Roman governor, so that they can have this execution authorized. They tell Pilate, hey, Pilate, this guy says he's the king of the Jews. You see, what they're doing is they're using language that that they're hoping will prompt Pilate to see this man Jesus as a revolutionary that's going to potentially lead an uprising against the Roman occupation. That would surely convince Pilate to have him executed, right? But Pilate recognizes he hasn't done anything wrong. There's no evidence of anything this man has done. And he continues to ask Jesus to defend himself. But Jesus, fulfilling prophecy, 
remains silent. He doesn't say a word. Pilate is amazed at the entire scene. No doubt, he's looking over the madness. He's looking over this innocent man that refuses to defend himself. He's looking over the crowd of religious elites that are frothing at the mouth. And he's thinking, y'all are crazy. This is nuts. I mean, we're in the middle of Passover week. Jerusalem, where Pilate is stationed, he's been there for nearly six or seven years at this point. It has swelled to ten times its size, as it always does during Passover week. This is, this, this is the Mardi Gras of Jerusalem. People are in from everywhere. Things are crazy. Pilate just doesn't want any part of it. But he thinks, all right, I've got a way out. Because during Passover week, every year, I give the Jews back one of their prisoners that's been condemned. So, okay. Okay, I'll take him. But now's the time that I give a prisoner back. Do you want Jesus? Well, this crowd, we largely think of it as the same folks that were laying the palm branches and the articles of clothing on Palm Sunday. It really isn't. Those folks are back at home. They're preparing for their own Passover meal. We see in Mark 15, this crowd is made up largely of the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. They're the ones ripping, whipping this whole crowd into a frenzy. And they start chanting for this man, Barabbas, we don't want Jesus. Give us this convicted murderer. Pilate says, all right, well... It doesn't make any sense to me, but but what do you want me to do with this man, Jesus? Crucify him. But he hasn't done anything wrong. Crucify him anyway. At this point, Pilate is done with it. He doesn't want to riot on his hands. He's got things to do. Fine. Take him. Pilate gives him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Now, Rome, they were experts at pain. Not just physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain. So so the whole process of this execution doesn't start at the cross. It actually starts with the soldiers. As they begin to mock Jesus, to beat Jesus, they hit him with sticks. They would take these long leather straps that would have had pieces of rock and bone And they whip him to within an inch of his life, tearing the flesh from his back. They put a robe on him that was purple. It signified royalty, a crown of thorns, and began to mock him. As he lay there bleeding, look, it's the king of the Jews. Spit on him. And when they got tired, they took the robe back off. And they began to lead him to the place he would be crucified, Golgotha, the place of the skull. In Latin, it's translated Calvary. 
But you see, Jesus, his body was so broken, he was so bloodied and beaten, he couldn't even carry this crossbeam at the time. So the soldiers just grab some random dude out of the crowd, a guy named Simon. He's on his way back in from the country. He's just coming home from work, no doubt, trying to get back to his two boys. He just wants to get ready for the Passover himself. And next thing you know, he finds himself carrying this 110-pound crossbeam for this convicted criminal whose body has been completely broken up the hill to the place he would be crucified. Now, when we get to that place, when we're at the foot of the cross, these soldiers offer Jesus a drink. It's a mixture of wine and myrrh. It's a very specific mixture. It's what they used at the time as, as a pain reliever. It would have numbed the senses so that he could have avoided some of the pain of the brutality that was about to happen. Jesus refuses. He wants to be in the moment. He wants to be mentally present. He knows he must bear the full burden of what's about to happen. Traditionally, when we're told the story, we, we hear that, that they put nails in his hands and nails in his feet. That wouldn't have actually been the case. You see, the nails would have gone through his shins and right here through the wrist, through the, through the two major bones, because it's the only place that those nails could have carried his full body weight. After they put Jesus on the cross, it wasn't enough. They continue to mock him. His closest friends and closest followers, terrified, way in the back of the crowd, they don't want to be associated with him. The Roman guards are around him gambling for articles of his clothing. The criminals that are on crosses on either side actually join in the mocking. If you're really the king of the Jews, if you're really the Messiah, why don't you just come down? Pretty simple, right, Jesus? After six hours of brutality that is unspeakable, Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, this is the moment that Jesus takes on the sin of the entire world. My sin, past present, and future. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We often hear that because this is the moment that Jesus took on all that sin, it's, it's the moment that God turned his back 
on his son. Do not believe that for a moment. God never left him. But you see, for the first time in 33 years, Jesus couldn't feel the presence of his father. You see, that's what sin does. It numbs us. It numbs our senses. It numbs our spirit. It numbs our soul, making it more and more difficult to feel the presence of God. But he's never left. For the first time in 33 years, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, knew what it was to be a sinner. Shortly after those words, we see in Mark chapter 15 that Jesus breathed his last. The moment that his lungs took their last breath, the moment that his heart took its last beat, the heavy curtain that was in the temple, the heavy curtain that separated the people from the very presence of God, the curtain that represented sin, the moment Jesus breathed his last, that curtain was torn from top to bottom. Suddenly, everyone has access to their creator. There is no longer a barrier. You see, in the sheer brutality of the cross, we see God's absolute commitment to justice. With sin comes a price. And in Mark chapter 15, we see that price. But in that torn curtain... We see God's absolute commitment to love and to mercy. Giving every man, every woman, every child access for the first time to their creator. As Jesus took his last breath, we see a picture of a Roman centurion. Now, a centurion would have been a seasoned soldier, 15 to 20 years, a veteran of many battles. They're called a centurion because they would have commanded 100 troops. This centurion would have been in charge of this entire process from the moment the Sanhedrin brought Jesus to Pilate. This centurion would have been there. When Pilate gives Jesus over to be executed, he would have given him to this centurion. This centurion would have at least authorized, if not taken part in, the beatings and mockings of this prisoner. He would have been the one walking with him 
up to Calvary. He may have even been the one with the hammer. And he would have guarded the prisoner all six hours. And as Jesus breathed his last breath, this centurion looks up and says, Surely, this is the Son of God. You may ask yourself, why on Palm Sunday, this day of celebration, this triumphal entry, do we spend 30 minutes talking about the brutality of the crucifixion? It's because when you witness Jesus Christ, when you see what he went through, when you are a witness to this sacrifice, you cannot deny the Messiah. In just a moment, I'm going to read the first 39 verses of the 15th chapter of Mark. It's going to take me several minutes. We're not going to put the words on the screen. I'm not even going to ask you to open your Bibles. Put your phones away for just a minute and be here. Let this story wash over you. Find a physical posture that allows you to focus on the words, to receive the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's right where you're sitting. Maybe it's bowing your head. Maybe it's coming forward and kneeling here at the front. Find yourself at the foot of the cross. After I get done reading, we're going to take a minute, 60 seconds, and it's going to feel like an eternity. 60 seconds of time for you to commune with your Father. Lean into that moment. Commune with your Creator. Recognize the brutality of Jesus' sacrifice. Remember all the prophecies that were fulfilled that day. Jesus knew every one of them. Jesus reminded his disciples time and time again. He told them exactly what was going to happen. He knew it all. He knew every false accusation. He knew every time that stick would hit his back. He knew every lash of the whip, every strike 
of the hammer. He knew it all and he did it anyway. Take that time to recognize the sacrifice and to be grateful beyond words and beyond measure that through that sacrifice, the curtain is torn. As soon as it was morning... Having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priests tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, you say I am. And the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer. And so Pilate was amazed. At the festival, Pilate used, uh, at the festival, Pilate used to release for the pr- people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. Pilate answered them, do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again they shouted, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having flogged Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led him away into the palace that is the governor's residence and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. They began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. They were hitting him on the head with a stick, spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they stripped him out of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided divided his clothes, casting lots, to decide which one would get which piece. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The, inspection, the inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. 
In the same way, the chief priests and the scribes were mocking him among themselves, saying, he saved others, but he can't even save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, see, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge mixed with sour wine, fixed it on a stick and offered it to him to drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Then Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man is the Son of God. 